end of the month approaches, you know, Reformation Sunday, uh, you know, remembering the Reformation beginning, the nailing of the 95 Theses to the church door in Wittenberg by Martin Luther, some things come to mind for me of what did the Reformation do for us? You know, there's a lot of movements for Protestants and Catholics to um, kind of get along for the sake of ministry and and many things, but beloved, we're, we're very fundamentally different than them. Just congregational singing is one thing that comes to mind this morning. In the medieval church, the, the choir sang. Participation in communion. Most of the time, you, you just watched it. You know, and the, maybe there's some splashed holiness on you. The translation of the Bible into the vulgar languages, into our language. These are all things. Even the return of preaching. Usually there was only a homily once or twice a year at Easter and Christmas maybe. Most of the time it was just a recitation of a Latin liturgy that people didn't understand. Your job was just to be there. The Reformation did this for us. They returned God's word to God's church for God's glory. We should thank the Lord for those men. But beloved, we're, this morning we're in Genesis chapter 12, 12 and 13. Um, I've been a bit under the weather. Hey, Judah, could you go to the fridge downstairs and get a bottle of water for me? Thank you. I've been, <clears throat> I've got an awful cough and I've been under the weather all week. Some people have had it worse uh, than I have. I think I'm, I just have a lingering cough, so I don't, I don't think I'm contagious or anything, but. If I cough a bunch, I'm sorry. Um, but this morning, as, as I was in Genesis 12 and 13, um, I was convicted that I was chopping the story in half. Um, and I, I, I often feel that the, the smaller a chunk I preach, the more I just pontificate. And the bigger chunk I preach, the more I just talk about God's word. And so that's what I'm going to try to do this morning. We're gonna, I'm going to try to preach all of chapters 12 and 13 as a single narrative. And beloved, uh, again, a main point. Um, just an outline for what we're going to go over. God gives a promise. Then Abraham faces a problem. And then he learns of God's providence. I don't usually alliterate. It came really easy this week. Abraham is given a promise, as we are given promises. Abraham faces a problem as we face problems. Just get the no, 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 never mind. Go to the house. There's water bottles in the fridge. I thought. Um. <coughs> Sorry. And Abraham's faith is not fundamentally different than ours. You see, doctrine, the old is in the new explained, but the new is in the old contained. And so the, the point of these two passages, I think Paul puts it, can put it in a single verse in Romans 28, when he tells us that God works all things together for the good of those who love him and those who are called according to his promises all according to his word. Beloved, we see 
that doctrine that Paul gives us in Romans 8, which we all love, you're drawn out in real life, a life, thank you. Um, lives that are messy, lives that face problems, you know, lives that woke up this morning and came over to the church and the bear had gotten into the trash again. Yeah, to hire a hunter. So, beloved, let's jump into God's word and, and find here an ancient faith which can encourage us today and instruct us on how we should live. Let's jump into God's word. Genesis chapter 12. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was seventy-five years old when he departed from Haran, and Abram took Sarai his wife, and Lot his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and the people that they had acquired in Haran. And they set out to go to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the oaks of Morah. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So they built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent. With Bethel on the west and Ai on the east, and there he built an altar to the Lord. And called upon the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on, still going toward the Negev. Now there was a famine in the land. So Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you're a woman beautiful in appearance. And when the Egyptians (coughs) see you, they will say, This is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Say you're my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and my life may be spared for your sake. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. And when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh, and the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And for her sake, he dealt well with Abram. And he had sheep and oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this that you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife, and all that he had. So Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife, and all they had, and Lot with him into the Negev. Now Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver and in gold. He journeyed on from the Negev as far as Bethel, to the place where his tent had been at the beginning, between Bethel and Ai, to the place, the name, (coughs) sorry, to the place where he had made an altar at first. And there Abram called upon the name of the Lord. And Lot, who 
went with Abram also had flocks and herds and tents. So the land could not support both of them dwelling together, for their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram, Abram's livestock, <coughs> and the herdsmen of life's, Lot's livestock. At that time, the Canaanites and the Perizzites were dwelling in the land. Then Abram said to Lot, Let there be no strife between you and me, between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we're kinsmen. Is not the whole land before you? Separate yourselves from me. If you take the left hand, then I will go to the right. If you take the right hand, I will go to you to the left. And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zoar. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley. And Lot journeyed east. Thus they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. And the Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, lift up your eye. Look at the place where you are, north, south, east, and west. For all the land that you see, I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that one can count the dust of the earth. Your offspring also can be counted. Arise, walk through the length and breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. So Abram moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron. And there he built an altar to the Lord. Beloved, the grass withers. Thanks. The grass withers and the flowers fade. But the word of our Lord stands forever. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father God, be with me now. I feel not up to the task, tired and continually coughing. But I am reminded that you delight to use people with all of their mess, all of their finitude, all of their failings. And so God, I pray that you would use this time this morning, the reading of your word, the power of your spirit, to encourage us, help us to see Christ, be encouraged in seeing our Savior, and to seek to follow in his footsteps, not so that you will love us, but because in Christ you do. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. It's a long passage, but I hope that you see just in a long reading, and I would encourage you, it's wonderful to read short chunks of God's word. You can be encouraged by a single verse. I don't want to disparage that at all. But from beginning to end, God begins with promises. Abraham goes through a trial, and then he reiterates and expands those promises. <coughs> God reiterates and expands his promises. And we see God's providence. Let's just, I've changed it a lot this morning, but let's just go through this paragraph by paragraph. God calls Abram in verse 1. This is how God works. It begins with God speaking. God is the initiator. When God's word is proclaimed, 
whether that is at creation and the cosmos coming to be, or Jesus at the tomb of Lazarus saying, Lazarus, arise. Or when God's word is read, when the Holy Spirit is working within us, God initiates. To him be the glory. But God initiates this, and he he calls him... He says, go from your country, your kindred, your father's house. He is calling him to give up everything that shapes his identity. Stephen calls him a wandering Aramean. We have seen that <clears throat> Sarah is barren. He is an aging man. Now, we shouldn't think of him as, as too old. His father, uh, Terah, lives 205 years. Okay? So it might be weird. It's like, how do they find a 60-something-year-old Sarah super attractive in Egypt. Well, think of this as middle-aged and doing well. Um, That is closer to, with how long people are living. It's not like they, you know, get super old at 70 and then just stay old for 130 years. But God shows up and he calls him to give up all of these identities. And the New Testament tells us he was a worshiper of idols. He was a wandering Aramean. He was not rich. And on an apologetic side of things, I I think it's worth pointing these out. Um, Stephen says that Abram leaves after Terah dies. Um, Just so you know, the math for that doesn't work. Um, uh, Terah dies at 205 years old, and Abram is born when he is 70. He has 135 years. So he has about 65 years of life after Abram leaves. How is this not a contradiction when Stephen says Abraham leaves after Terah dies? Well, the the Bible is a book, inspired and inerrant book, and it it has to figure out how do you close one narrative and begin the next. And and we're going to see this multiple times in the Bible. I I know this is kind of academic, but I, I want you to have an answer for this. If someone wants to, this is a contradiction that people point out in the Bible, you need an answer. Well, the fact of the matter is, as you read the book, it finishes the story of Terah by saying the days of Terah were 205 years and Terah died in Haran. So it finishes, it closes Terah and then it goes back in time to Abram being called while in Babylon to go. This is not a contradiction. This is very much normal Bible. It is dischronologized and that's not a problem. The reason it's not a problem is if you have watched like a cop movie ever, you are not frustrated when it starts and there's a guy like sprinting through a dark alleyway being chased by dogs and lights behind him and he goes and vaults into a dumpster and then he looks at the camera and go, you know, and then it goes, you know, 24 hours earlier, you know. Um, this is very normal storytelling. It was normal then. Uh, it is normal now. Um, God's word is inspired and inerrant. It's not a contradiction. Um, okay, if you want to find the story of Abram, like Stephen is preaching, where do you begin Abram's story? Well, right after it says Terah dies. Um, so story-wise, it's after. Chronologically, it's while he still lives. Does this make so he really is. He's not waiting for his. And why is it important? He is not waiting for his dad to die to give up these ties. He comes from a pagan family, and Yahweh shows up to him. And he lets that go. 
By God's grace, some of you have not experienced this because you've grown up in the family of God. Praise the Lord. But some of you have. For some of you, becoming a Christian meant the loss of friends. And hopefully it meant the gaining of a new identity in Christ and in Christ's church. But he, he calls him to give up everything. And uh, if, if you read with a pencil, circle these eyes to the land that I will show you. I will make your name great. I will bless you and make your name great so that you'll be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. <clears throat> and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Christianity, well, the, the, the Bible from the very beginning is a religion that focuses not first on what we are to do, but on what God has done. We do what we do only because God has first done what he has done. If we get this wrong, we lose the gospel. We love God because he first loved us. God is not looking down a quarter of time and finding people that will love him and then choosing to call and love them. No, that would give you cause to boast. That is you saying, I did this. I was worthy of it in some way. No, beloved, we are not. We, from the very beginning, God initiates. God calls. And, and Paul in Romans 4 and 5, why is it why is it that Abraham is able to respond to this if not by the Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit doesn't just show up in Acts chapter 2. When we see faith, that is the faith is the principal work of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is at work. Beloved, we can see this. Our walk of faith is right here. He shows up as a prodigiously loving God who's just heaping blessings upon Abraham. It's going to cost him something. He's, he's giving up his whole identity. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. There's this rescue mission to the fracturing that happens at Babylon, that we, not Babylon, at Babel, which we begin to see undone at, in Acts 2 with the outpouring of tongues. But let's see this, this uh, promise continue. Uh, so Abraham goes. He's a man of faith, worked by the Holy Spirit. Abraham goes as the Lord had told him. Lot goes with him. Abraham's 75 years old when he departs Haran. His father's still alive. He gave that up. And Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered and the people they acquired in Haran. They set out to go to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land in the place at Shechem to the Oaks of Morah. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Why does it need to say at that time? Well, this reminds us he's writing to the Israelites as they are coming up out of Egypt and the Canaanites are in front of them but they are going to read this hopefully at a point when the Canaanites aren't there. So it kind of breaks the fourth wall and is explaining to the Israelites at that time the Canaanites were in the land. The Lord appeared to Abram again said to your offspring I will give this land. So he built an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. <clears throat> From there he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent. Bethel on the west, Ai on the east. There he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abraham journeyed on, still going toward the Negev. Might be helpful at some point to get some basic geography of Israel in your mind. Bethel and Ai are a few miles north of Jerusalem, 
uh, on, on the mountain ridge that runs north and south <clears throat> through Israel. And, and as you, uh, in Israel, the further south you go, the drier it gets. He is, he, and so there's more people up north than down south. And he, he kind of comes down south into the Negev, very arid environment. So God has given him all these promises. He's reiterated it. He is, he is, the, the gospel has been poured out, which, by the way, the New Testament says the gospel was proclaimed to Abram. Now the problem. First the promise, now the problem. There's a famine in the land. There was a famine in the land. So Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine in the land was severe. <clears throat> Imagine the Israelites reading this. The Israelites are coming up out of Egypt. Jesus sojourns in Egypt for a short time as a child. And, and the book of Matthew says this is to fulfill what was written by the prophet Hosea, up out of Egypt I called my son. Egypt is kind of a type of what Israel will be. And Israel, Jesus kind of follows in those same footsteps, showing himself to be what the nation was always meant to be. I don't think we should think of him going to Egypt as necessarily a sin. There's, there's, there's nothing in here. Later, the patriarchs will be told to go to Egypt. I think sometimes we can read this and go, oh, it's, it's sin, you know, with, with famine. I, I don't see that in the text, but I think the Israelites are seeing our father Abraham walked the same steps we are walking now. The trial comes in Egypt. So he enters Egypt and he says to Sarai, his wife, I know that you're a beautiful woman in appearance. When the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is my wife. Then they will kill me. They will let you live. Say you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, that my life may be spared for your sake. You could permit me to just be like a high school Bible teacher again for a moment. The Bible can be hard to read because the context is so far from us. Um, and so if, if you take notes, you, there's a number of things that you just need to assume on the pages, particularly of the Old Testament, that's radically different than what we experience. One, it is an agricultural world. Far more than we, you know, the re, animals are the norm. Cr the crop cycles are the norm. You're, you're, most of you are probably not making plans based on how the wheat harvest goes uh, right now, or actually it should have already taken place. The last of the feed corn might be being gathered in. The, the hay bales are being made. Most of our cycles don't rise and fall with the animals and the crops and the rain. It is an agricultural world, and it, it, it will benefit your Bible study if you learn a little bit about that kind of agricultural world. Another thing, it's an arid world. Israel is dependent on rain, unlike Mesopotamia and unlike Egypt. And God makes a point of this. The Egyptians did not need to plow and plant and beg God for rain. The Babylonians did not need to plow and plant and beg God for rain. The Israelites did. Their life would rise and fall based on these famine sequences and rain sequences. And in an arid environment, water equals life. You know, most of us don't just, you know, rejoice that we can have clean water. It's such an assumption. We put potable water in the toilets to flush them. 
The arid world knows nothing of this. Water is life. Without it, you will die. And it's hard to understand the worries and the fears of these believers if you don't really get it's an agricultural world and it's an arid world. But the other thing is it's a monarchical world. It's rule right. Might makes right. The strong men, and, and this begins, it's, it's not really the age of the giant empires yet. The Hittites are rising at this point. But the pharaohs in Egypt, a pharaoh was a king of a city at this point. There were many pharaohs in Egypt. It is probably not until the time of Joseph in which uh, the power of the pharaoh is consolidated to one place. Might makes right. There isn't like these just nice common laws in the land. You are protected by the walls that you are within, by the man that you are following, and his ability to get a force to protect you. We know nothing of this fear. We know nothing of this fear. And so it's, it is easy to see, oh my goodness, Abram, how ridiculous. Often one of the things that these kings would do to control the populace is they just take the beautiful women. They have a harem, not even if they're, they're being intimate with all of them, but they get to parcel them out for people's wives at some point in order to gain favors. It's one of the ways in which they control, keep control of power. It's an agricultural world, it's an arid world, it's a monarchical world. That is, there's no law. It's just strong men. That's it. It's chaotic and violent. It's also... Um, not that it's going to hit here. It's a world in which slavery is just normal. Slavery is normal, and so is polytheism. Maybe believers in India have a sense of what it's like to live in a polytheistic culture. We don't. There's so many things that are just far off that we need to have in our minds as we draw near, that this is a real temptation. And beloved, as you come to sins, and here's the, back to the sermon, but as you as you come to places in the Bible and you go, well, how ridiculous is that sin? You need to pause and do some study so that you can repent a little bit and realize really and truly, but for the grace of God, we would be doing these same things. Really and truly. Abraham is faced with a real temptation. He has been given great promises on God's part that require him to live. And yet he faces... There's no food. There's no water. I have to go somewhere. And the only place I can go, they're probably going to kill me. And so Abram starts with these promises, and he seems to be faithful. He goes. He begins this walk of faith, and then he meets a problem, and now there's tension. And what is the temptation? The temptation is, I know how to wheel and deal. I know how to kind of take circumstances and and warp them for my benefit by maybe compromising a little bit on my morals. Beloved, we face the same temptation. And actually, you go to Matthew 4 briefly and you look at the temptation of Jesus. I, I think one of the temptations that is furthest from us, as we read Matthew, we go, how is that tempting? Um, can help us here. The, the bread is easy. The bread is easy. He's hungry. He's been hungry for 40 days. The temptation is a temptation of the flesh. But then verse 5 in Matthew 4 kicks in. 
devil took him to the holy city, put him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said, if you're the son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, one promise, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. So Jesus is being tempted. Jesus, who desires, is righteous. He desires to fulfill the promises of God. And as a man, as a fully human Savior, fully divine yet fully human, this is a real temptation. He doesn't understand all of, he is learning and growing. And there is tension here between God has made these promises and then there's the temptation, I could just fulfill this by you know, doing it myself. You know, I'm going to take it into my own hand. He doesn't know how that's going to be resolved. He doesn't necessarily know what it's going to look like for God to command his angels concerning him or on their hands they will bear you up lest you f- strike your foot against a stone. But he does know that he's not to put the Lord as God to the test. This is a, it's hard to see this as a real temptation until you understand Jesus is like a man with real temptations, yet without sin. Everything it means to be human, Jesus is. And this should encourage us because our great high priest has been tempted as we are. And so when we see Adam's failure, we should look to Christ and see his success. When we get to Abram's failure, we need to look to Christ and see his success. And here's the pastoral pattern. When we see our failures and temptations, we look to Christ and see his success. And then in our very prayers, we can be encouraged that Jesus Christ, as a real-life man, has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So we have a high priest who sits at the right hand of the Father, advocating on our behalf, that like really gets it. It gets that temptation is hard. Abram doesn't know how he's going to live. God has given his promises, but he thinks he's going to, maybe just by a little compromise, he can, he's been given promises, now he faces a problem. Beloved, (coughs) got to learn to mute. God gives his promises. And then we are tempted. We can feel, if I'm called to do this, God will, here's, okay. God will never call us to something that requires us to compromise on something as regards his law. We might need to compromise with our spouses in a loving way, you know. God will never call us to something. It, it, you will never be, you know, called uh, to X, Y. You're, you're, you're never going to be called to, uh, for young people, marrying someone. I think it's God's will that I marry this person. No, it's not. They're not a Christian. You know, you're not to be unequally yoked. It's God's, God, God has spoken, and you're ignoring it. God will never call us to something that requires us to compromise as regards his law, even if we don't know the way out. Even if Abram doesn't know the way out, even if we are faced with trials and temptations and we don't know the way out, we can go, I have God's promises. I don't know how he's going to fulfill them, but he keeps his word. I don't know how it's going to work out. So he compromises. He compromises. He goes into Egypt. 
saw the woman was very beautiful. The princes of Pharaoh saw her. They prayed. It happens. Abram, he was wise in the world. He knew what was going to happen, and it happened. And for her sake, he dealt well with Abram. Abram compromises, sins, gives his wife away, essentially, and like financial wealth is like poured out upon him. What's the lesson here? Should we, okay, maybe our God is so gracious and so merciful that when we preach his mercy and his grace and his love, rightly people will go, wait a second. Maybe I should sin all the more that grace might abound. Meganoita, may it never be, God forbid. But beloved, if when Paul in Romans gets to that point, should we sin all the more that grace might abound? If that question makes no sense to you, how could someone possibly ask that? Then maybe you haven't really meditated on how merciful, how gracious, how prodigious and loving is our God and Father. That God is for us, even we are not for ourselves, and we are sinning. God can take even what we mean for sin and use it for good. We have a wonderful God. Now, God would have had every right to discipline Abram here, but he chooses not to. The Lord afflicts Pharaoh. See, it's, it's, it's not like one was sinning and one was righteous. They were both sinning. God afflicts Pharaoh and his house with great plagues. What do you think comes to mind with the Israelites when they hear this? Pharaoh is afflicted with great plagues and they leave wealthy having plundered the Egyptians. It's like a pattern maybe because of Sarai, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh calls Abram and says, what is this that you have done to me? Why didn't you tell me that she is your wife? I don't know. Maybe you would have killed me. Why'd you say she's my sister? I took her for my wife. Now then, here's your wife. Take her and go. Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. So Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife and all that he had, and Lot with him into the Negev, back to the desert, back to the wilderness. Now Abram was rich with livestock and silver and in gold, and he journeys there as far as Bethel. He's come up just again north, just north of Jerusalem, to the place where he'd made the altar at the first. He returns back where the promises of God had been given and reiterated. And there Abram called upon the name of the Lord. And Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks. Now one of their problems is they are, you know, they leave because they are about to die of starvation. That was their problem. Now their problem is wealth. From one problem to the next. The land couldn't support them. We know kind of how it goes. We'll probably begin here next week. But as, as we go, we see Abram, the patriarch, faced with conflict, and so they're going to change. And he doesn't choose to go to the really wealthy land. Agriculture is wealth. Your wealth is measured in your harvests and in your cattle. And Abram does not run off to the valley. He does not run off to kind of the... The Jordan's a bit of a mini Nile. It's a mini Tigris. It's a mini Fertile Crescent between 
the Nile and the Tigris and the Euphrates. Though you're found in the desert place, blessed be your name. Something of faith. We see Abram's faith developing. And then as, as Lot goes to Sodom and Gomorrah, let's just jump to verse 14. The Lord said to Abram, <clears throat> the Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, he says, lift up your eyes, look from the place where you are, north, south, east, and west. All the land that you see, I will give you and your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring can also be counted. Arise, walk through the length and breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. So Abram moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron. There he built an altar to the Lord. We're going to see as we go in Genesis that Abram will compromise again. Abram will doubt again. But he is a man of faith. And how is that faith built? It initiates in the Holy Spirit, but it also grows in God's providence. You see, not just our salvation is initiated with God, but also our sanctification. He who began a good work in us carries it to completion. So, beloved, you know, there's many lessons that we learn as we meet with trials and temptations and problems. But at least one thing we can see, God's providence through it all. God's ability to use even our sins. So, beloved, if there are sins that you have, you have repented of, you, you are ashamed that it even happened. We've repented of them. You don't need to carry shame. You did not mess up God's plan. But actually, you might be where you are today because of that, because he can use that sin in your life to grow your faith by his Holy Spirit. God is in control in a real and true way. So don't carry shame from sin that's been confessed. But then also, Look at Christ. You know, as we end, as we end, Christ, why does, this, why does the Bible go so far out of its way to tar every single character? To show that every single man, at least, has feet of clay. Don't be tempted to turn this person into a hero. Any hero that they are is a bit of a shadow, and the shadow points to Christ. We need a patriarch whose feet are not made of clay. We need a new Adam who does not fall to temptation. We need a new king, unlike David, that does not just take advantage of his power and position. We need a priest who can commiserate with our weakness and does not die. We need a priest who has not been tainted by sin, so he has to offer up sacrifices for his own sin. We look to Christ and we rejoice. The Bible is full of people with feet of clay. And I believe that lesson that God and his providence, why is God telling this very story to the Israelites? Well, maybe it's so the Israelites, what are the Israelites tempted with as they're coming up and they're living in the desert? What does the rabble say? Back where the land was green. That agricultural temptation, that security for what's going to happen when the harvest doesn't come. At least in Egypt as a slave, we had our vegetables and our onions and chives and fish from the Nile. 
And in the same way, the Israelites could be taught to remain steadfast, to trust in God's providence, to fulfill His promises. So too can we learn that lesson. And we can look to Christ and be encouraged that though we sin, God can use it for good, but Christ never sin. Let's, let's end in prayer as the worship team comes forward. How do we respond? How do we apply? Well, beloved, one always fitting application. This great God that we see in his word, this great savior that we have in Christ, one response, one application is we worship in spirit and in truth. Let's sing. Let me pray. My God, how can it be that you would love someone like me, just a sinner in a saint's disguise, but you've opened up my eyes. Your love is better than life, deeper than the sea, more beautiful than any of the things surrounding me. Father, I pray that you would truly use that which is weak in the world's eyes to shame the wise, that your word would go out with power by your spirit, that we would grow in faith, not because of the eloquence of my preaching. Because there is power in your word, your spirit moves. So move in us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Come, let's stand and sing.